0: Well, good morning, Stafford Baptist Church. It is good to gather with you this morning to worship our our prophet and King Jesus. In case I haven't met you yet, my name is Kelton. I also have the privilege of serving here as, as one of the elders of Stafford Baptist Church. If you would, please open in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12. This morning we finished the last section of this chapter in verses 38 through 50. Matthew twelve, thirty eight through fifty, greater prophet and king. Here Jesus' interaction with the Pharisees continues, who are now requesting from him a sign. But before we read their request, let's pray once more for God's help in the, the hearing and the proclaiming of God's word. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven, oh, We say how we love your instruction. It is our meditation all the day. What you command makes us wiser than our enemies. We have more understanding than the wisest teacher. Because your word is our meditation. We have more understanding than the aged when we obey what you command. Lord, your word holds us back from every evil way and you teach us the right path. We say this morning that your word is sweeter than honey to our mouths. So, Lord, give us understanding by your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes it's hard to pick a side. This year's World Series was between a team known in recent years for their cheating and a team that are the perennial rivals of my favorite team. It makes you wonder, in that scenario, is there a way that both teams can lose how do we How do we work that out? Well, I ended up cheering for the rivals. I think the lesser of two evils sometimes it's it 's hard to pick a side or maybe if you 're not a sports fan, you think of a recent election. Sometimes it seems impossible for us to find a candidate who is worthy of our vote, who represents your positions, what you think is best for our, our county, our state, or our, our country. Sometimes it's hard to pick a side. And it's, it's the same, if you think about it, for hundreds of other choices. You're left waffling between two options, wishing somehow it was more clear, it was easier Maybe that you'd have some kind of of sign to tell you what you need to do, even. Well, unfortunately, that's how some people treat Jesus. That His ministry of miracles was too ambiguous. And they ask for a clearer sign. In our passage this morning, the the Pharisees find that it's difficult to pick a side. They, They ask Jesus... For a sign, to prove by this sign his divine authenticity. But what we find is that Jesus refuses to give them a sign. He instead points to his own preaching and and wisdom, greater than the greatest of the Old Testament. That is all the sign that they need to repent and believe and obey. Though we do not see Jesus today, Though he gives no more signs of his identity, we too have all that we need to repent and believe and obey. The preaching and wisdom of Jesus demand that we repent and obey his will. So let's read Matthew 12, starting in verse 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty "'swept and put in order. "'Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, "'and they enter and dwell there. "'And the last state of that person is worse than the first. "'So also will it be with this evil generation.' "'While he was still speaking to the people, "'behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. "'But he replied to the man who told him, "'Who is my mother and who are my brothers?' And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The word of the Lord. Our big idea this morning is this. The preaching and wisdom of Jesus demands that we repent and do his will. The preaching and wisdom of Jesus demands that we repent and do his will. When the, the Pharisees ask for an immediate sign, he says, No sign will be given, not in the way that they want. No, rather, his his preaching and his wisdom is greater than Jonah and, and Solomon. If pagans repented at the preaching of Jonah and came to hear of the wisdom of Solomon, then all the more for Jesus. But rather, Jesus teaches, this generation will be worse off, having heard the preaching and and seen the wisdom, but still refusing to repent and obey. Jesus closes this passage with a, a picture of true discipleship. To be in his family is by doing the will of his father to obey. The preaching and wisdom of Jesus demands that we repent and do his will. We'll have three points this morning that, that follow the paragraphs in the, the ESV. First, no other sign, that in the first paragraph, verses 38 through 42. Second, worse than at first, that in verses 43 through 45. And finally, the third and final paragraph, the family trait, 46 through 50. No other sign worse than at first in the family trait. So let's, let's get started back in verse 38 and our first point, no other sign, Jesus here is still in conversation with the Pharisees, as he has been in the whole whole chapter. He's joined in verse thirty-eight by some scribes. Scribes were those who could read and write, and and were teachers and legal experts in the law of Judaism. They are not the, the same things as the Pharisees, but but are often associated with the Pharisees. You can remember in the Sermon on the Mount, right? Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Scribes and Pharisees. This, this whole chapter has been marked by confrontation with the Pharisees. First, they challenge Jesus in his observation of the, the Sabbath, then accusing him of, of casting out demons by the power of, of Satan. And now they ask for a, a sign. It, it seems that their request, the Pharisees answered him, it says, is, is in direct response to his claim, in the previous verses, that he had come to plunder Satan's riches, his house, by, by the power of the Spirit. How can we know for sure? They ask. We wish to see a sign. Please prove it. They ask their question with respect, calling him Teacher. And what they're asking for is, is, they call it a sign. They're, they're asking some, for some irrefutable proof of what he is teaching. The, the miracles they think that, that he's already performed are, are too ambiguous for them. Maybe they really are by the power of Satan. Can you make it plain for us, Jesus? You know, many Old Testament prophets perform signs to authenticate their message You think of of Moses who was given a staff that could become a snake. Elijah called down fire from heaven. Even Isaiah made the sundial turn back for Ahaz. The, The commentator Don Carson explains, A sign was usually some miraculous token to be fulfilled quickly or at once to confirm a prophecy. What makes a sign? A sign is its immediacy. Do you have a, a sign for us, Jesus? You know, this is not an actually uh, uncommon request in our day as, as well, right? People hear the claims of Jesus that he is Lord and Savior, that he offers forgiveness for sins that, in response to our repentance and faith, that he will come back as, as judge to, to usher in our eternal faith. And, and, and they want some kind of sign. How can I know that these claims are true for sure. Well, what does Jesus think of those who ask for a sign? Look at verse 39. He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. Their request, after so much clear evidence, betrays what's in their heart. A fundamental opposition to God. He calls it evil. When he calls them adulterous, he's, he's not speaking about their marriages. No, it's a, it's a spiritual term, that they've been unfaithful to God and pursued other gods. It's a strong reproof against these teachers of Israel, but it's, but it's also a, a reproof of the whole nation, the whole generation. You know, the, the proof that they need Is right there in front of them, clear as day. The the problem is not with the lack of proof, but their vision, their inability to see the proof. We'll get back to some of that proof in verses 41 and 42, but, but first, the sign of Jonah. No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah, he says. This generation will get one sign, he says, the sign of Jonah. It's not the sign that they're looking for, a miracle on the spot, right, to confirm his identity. No, this miracle, the miracle he speaks of, will not come for some time. So no, Jesus offers no miraculous tokens on demand. But Matthew makes it clear what Jesus means in in verse 40. First of all, you will recall that the, the Old Testament prophet Jonah tried to flee from God. But when he fleed, he was hurled from his ship and and nearly drowned, but but God delivered him. He rescued him by sending a fish to swallow him. And he was in that fish for three days and three nights. Nowhere, when we read the book of Jonah, does it say that that Jonah stayed in that fish as a sign, as a prediction of things to come. But, But here, this is how Jesus reads that book. Verse 40, Jesus says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He is talking, of course, about his death. That he will be buried in the earth for three days. For those keeping track, this is the first time that Jesus has made explicit mention of his coming death as recorded in the book of Matthew. You might be confused because Jesus was only in the grave technically two nights. But, but in their culture, the day and night were part of one thing. So it says he was in the grave Friday, Saturday, and, and part of Sunday as well. He was in the grave in a combined part of three days. So Jesus is here saying that he will be in the grave three days. But, but only three days. Just as Jonah was delivered from the fish... Jesus will be delivered from the grave. Obviously, on our side of the resurrection, it is crystal clear what Jesus is speaking about here, what he means. But it's honestly likely lost on the Pharisees and scribes and, and his own disciples who hear this. We learn that Jesus had to teach time and time again what he meant, and they still didn't get it. They didn't even get it when they found his grave empty. Jesus here is pointing forward to the end of his ministry, his death and resurrection, as the only sign that this generation will receive. There's so much for us to consider here, but first notice. The Old Testament predicts Jesus' resurrection in the pattern of Jonah's time in the fish. Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15.4 that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance to Scripture. But you would be hard-pressed to find in the Old Testament a verse so explicit that he would be raised on the third day. Again, we we see that the Old Testament predicts Jesus' life, death, and resurrection not only in prophecy, but in patterns. Jesus isn't just doing what the prophets predicted, what they said he would do, but he is also following the patterns of, of the events, the institutions, the figures of the Old Testament. But, but also, friends, Jesus says that his resurrection will be the sign that they need. Though he wouldn't offer it to the Pharisees immediately, as they demand, we live today as, as those who have the eyewitness testimony of that sign. Jesus was publicly crucified and pierced with a spear, his lifeless body was laid in a tomb and sealed shut. This was no illusion. He was not just some spirit who appeared to be dead. The real man, Christ, was, was dead and was buried. But unlike anyone else in all of history, he got up from that grave. In in three days, as predicted by the sign of Jonah, Jesus rose from the dead and walked out of that tomb. Certainly, brothers and sisters, the the resurrection from the dead is is the linchpin of Christianity. It is the the keystone that holds it all in place. Again, Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 15 says what it would mean if Christ has not been raised from the dead. In, In verse 19 he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He says that Christians are the most pitiful people on earth if our hope is only in this life, if there is no resurrection from the dead. All is in vain otherwise, it's it's for nothing. You pull the resurrection out of Christianity and it all falls apart. I would encourage you, Christian, when you have doubts, start with the resurrection. In fact, if you're joining us this morning and you're not a Christian, let me encourage you to do the same. It's not uncommon for us to face doubts about, for example, the, the veracity of the, the history of Adam. Or the inerrancy of, of the scriptures. Or 1,000 other issues in the Bible. But I would encourage you to not take those issues as your starting point. The the first and most important question you have to answer is is did Jesus Christ rise from the dead? If not, it's all pointless anyway. Who cares about Adam? But if he did, well, well consider. If, if Jesus rose from the dead, if he has such vindication from God, well, we need to pay very close attention to all that he taught. And what did he teach? Well, he taught that Adam was a man in history, a historical person. Jesus taught that the Bible was without error. It all spirals out from this center. The the linchpin. Jesus Christ, as an irrefutable sign from God, rose from the dead. So the resurrection, brothers and sisters, is the foundation on which all our other beliefs stand on. Jesus rose from the dead. And everything else is true also. Well, praise God, we have more time to consider his resurrection in Matthew 28 one day. Right now, that's not particularly Matthew's point. He says, that sign will come, but no, they don't get the sign they wanted. The evidence is right there in front of them today. In verses 41 and 42, he he points to two Old Testament figures, Jonah and Solomon, and, and how people responded to them in their time to teach us how we should respond to the signs that are clearly evident In Jesus' preaching and wisdom. First, in in verse 41, we have Jonah. Jonah, the the prophet of Israel, was sent on a unique mission. He was sent to the, the capital city of the big baddies, right? Nineveh of Assyria. He was sent to proclaim to them the coming destruction of God on their city. And what did these wicked pagans do when they heard Jonah's preaching? They repented. They believed Jonah's message, the whole city. They turned from their evil ways. They turned to God in faith. So, Jesus says in verse 41 that that generation that repented at the preaching of Jonah will condemn this generation of Israel on the day of judgment. That's right. The, the pagan residents of Nineveh will join in condemnate, condemning these Israelites because they have refused to repent at the preaching of one far greater than Jonah, those Ninevites repented at the simple preaching of Jonah, eight words we have in the English of coming judgment. Here we have Jesus, who came teaching, it says, with authority, not as their scribes. His preaching brings out the true meaning of the law, but, but more than that, he claims to have authority to fulfill the law that he teaches. He too proclaims coming judgment and the need to repent. But is it met with widespread repentance like Jonah's? No. Jesus is one greater than Jonah. Something greater than Jonah is here, he says at the end of verse 41. He is the greater prophet from God. Not just his messenger, like Jonah, but God Himself in the flesh. He is the Word of God become incarnate. God now speaking to us by His Son. If pagans could repent at the preaching of Jonah, this generation should most certainly repent at the greater preaching of the greater Jonah. What they have is more than enough. Or in verse 42, now we have Solomon. We read earlier in our service from 1 Kings 10 of of Solomon's wisdom. Wisdom so great that the queen of Sheba traveled great distance just to witness it. We read that she tested Solomon with hard questions and, and he answered all of them. Nothing was hidden from Solomon's wisdom. And in that text, she blesses God for it. Well, So just as the pagans responded to Jonah's preaching in Nineveh, now a pagan queen responds to Solomon's wisdom. And so too, Jesus says to this generation, that the queen will rise up on the day of judgment and with the Ninevites condemn them. She came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And as great as Solomon was, Jesus is greater He answers all the questions and accusations of of the people with ease. No questions can stump him. In fact, he he traps the, the devious in their designs against him. So if pagans came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, this generation should come to the greater wisdom of the greater Solomon. And not only offer gold and riches of spices, but but their very selves in adoring worship and obedience to this greater king. But they don't listen to his wisdom. They won't recognize it and submit to it. You'll remember that already at the, the start of this chapter, Jesus describes himself as one greater than the temple Now he adds greater than than Jonah, greater than Solomon. That's a wonderful word for us to meditate. Greater. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater than than Adam, than Noah, than than Abraham, than Israel. Greater than David and Solomon. He's greater than Moses, Elijah, and, and Jonah. He is greater than them all because he is before them all. He created them. He is greater than them all because they all point to him. He is greater than them all because where they all have failed, he never has. There is no one greater than Jesus, and it's not even close. You know, if you take a moment to notice, we humans clamor for greatness. Have you ever thought about how silly it is to get autographs from people? Right? We want the so-called great people to autograph their names on our possessions so we can show off to other people our proximity to greatness and get them to be jealous. I speak that as one who has assigned baseball on his shelf, right? <laughs> we pay the, the so-called great millions to act on a screen or to, to play in a field so we can witness greatness. But, but all the greatness of this world pales in comparison to the greatness of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. You know, something greater is here, he says, than the greatest. Jesus is not just another celebrity to follow on Instagram or or whatever, right? Do you see the greatness of Jesus in his preaching and wisdom? There is none greater, friends. Does his preaching and wisdom capture your attention and, and adoration? more than any other celebrity or great one this world can offer. Jesus teaches here that they are sign enough that he is the greatest among us. He is sent from God and that demands our repentance and complete obedience. He does not need to offer any more proof of his pedigree. And friends, this is still a great gift to us. Jesus didn't just teach them then, but he continues to teach and offer his wisdom. We still come to learn from him and grow from Jesus' wisdom. That's that's part of the reason why we gather as a church week in and week out to hear from God's word, whether it's in a sermon like this or in in other formats like our, our Sunday school. You know, we're not here to learn of the wisdom of men. God forbid that this is just a lecture on on my opinions. No, God has given this gathering to teach the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. It's not too early to think about New Year's resolutions. They're coming quick. For those of you who who don't, I I would encourage you to resolve next year to come to our Sunday school hour at, at 9.30. There is wonderful teaching happening at the hour before our worship service. In fact, tonight at our, our members meeting, we will be announcing our, our 2022 calendar for our Sunday school. We have, Lord willing, 11 different classes planned across the whole year. And, and I pray that these classes will, will reflect the, the great preaching and, and wisdom of, of our greater prophet and king, Jesus Christ, who is Lord of his church. His preaching and wisdom are, are so great, they demand our repentance and obedience. To waffle with indecision, to require more proof, more signs, is to reveal a blind and evil heart. You can't sit on the fence with Jesus. That's the point of his little story that comes next in verses 43 through 45. Worse than at first, our second point. Worse than at first. Jesus here tells a a short story about a man and some unclean spirits. Uh, And I think if you read this quickly, you know, in your Bible reading plan, just going through Matthew 12, you, you might not be immediately certain how this connects with what Jesus is teaching in this chapter. So we'll start by looking at the end. Look at the last sentence of verse 45. Jesus concludes, So also will it be with this evil generation. So also will it be with this evil generation. Whatever Jesus teaches in this story, his point is to compare This story with this evil generation. It will be likewise. The generation that doesn't repent at his preaching or come to his wisdom. Okay, so it's a comparison. As it is in this short story, so it will be with this evil generation. Well, what happens in this story? Well, back up just a little bit more in verse 45 to the sentence before. Jesus' punchline, right? He says the last state of that person is worse than the first. The last state of that person is worse than at first. It started bad. The man was possessed by a demon. But it it ends worse. Now possessed by eight demons. One and seven others. And now more evil, it says. I think he might use this story. Because in the context, he was casting out a demon. It's what started the whole discussion back in verse 22. I don't think the point of the story is particularly or primarily to teach us about demons and their possession of us, though you can infer some things. But I think the point is is much of what we saw last week. I can quote myself from last week. It is not enough to simply be free from demon oppression, like the man in the story. What is required is a particular assessment of those miracles. What is their source? Who is Jesus? Where is he from? And what will I do with that information? Will I join with him or stand against him? Because if you're freed from a demon but reject Jesus, well, still, you're worse off, not better. And so in the end of verse 45, he makes the comparison to this generation, this evil generation. They were better off before Jesus came. Now... They had heard his preaching and seen his wisdom. Greater preaching and wisdom than what they had from Solomon and Jonah. Greater revelation, but they did not repent or submit to his wisdom. They had more than enough reason to come to him, but did not. Jesus is teaching us here that with greater revelation comes greater accountability. He's taught us something similar. Back in the end of chapter 11, you might remember, he said that judgment will be greater for the Galilean cities than for Sodom because they had seen his mighty works, his miracles. Yes, both will be judged, the Galilean cities and Sodom, but there are evidently, he says, degrees of judgment, more bearable for some, he says, because of less revelation. So the generation he speaks to, has greater accountability because the greater Jonah and the greater Solomon is here. This principle that greater revelation creates greater accountability is is taught elsewhere in the Bible. You know that that phrase that Jesus uses there in the middle of verse 45, the last state of the person is worse than the first, shows up nearly exactly in in Peter's second letter. Peter, the, the disciple, the apostle of Christ who heard him teach this. Second Peter 2, verses 20 and 21, Peter writes, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What Peter teaches there is shocking. Better to never hear of Jesus than hear and turn back. Sounds a lot like Jesus' little story of the man swept clean. You know, brothers and sisters, we are who Peter speaks about. We who have knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We live on this side of the cross and the sign of Jonah, of the resurrection. The the greatest revelation of God's character and veracity. So this is frankly sobering. The greater our knowledge, the greater our opportunity for knowledge, the greater our accountability to that knowledge. So I ask, brothers and sisters, what are you doing with all that revelation? It's there for you to hear and believe and obey. How many hours of Bible reading and sermons have you heard? You will give an account for it. Why don't you prepare for that account now by thinking, what are you doing with all of it? Are you worse off having heard but deaf to what it means for you? This is especially true for pastors and teachers in the church, James 3.1 warns us, we who teach will be judged, he says, with greater strictness. Commenting on James 3.1, one teacher said, when we undertake to guide others in the faith, we must be especially careful to exhibit the fruit of that faith by the way we live. Our greater knowledge brings with it a greater responsibility to live according to that knowledge. He says, especially of those who teach, we must obey. No one gets into heaven because they've heard a lot of sermons, or because they've preached a lot of sermons, or, or have a lot of Bible knowledge. No, it requires true belief to live according to that knowledge, to obey. Obedience is the mark of a true disciple. The one who truly has God as Father. So here's a suggestion for you this morning on your way home or at lunch today. Talk to someone who you came with or someone else about how you plan on putting something you heard today into action. So it is not merely what you hear, but what you do. And ask them then to keep you accountable. To follow up with you next week. To see how it's gone. How have you done? Because to hear and do nothing only makes you worse, not better. This is what it means to be a part of God's family. Not just to hear, but to do the will of our Father in heaven. That's how Matthew concludes this section in chapter 12. Let's look at our third and final point this morning, starting in verse 46. The family trait. The family trait. These verses wrap up our passage by reminding us that we must take sides. You can't be neutral with Jesus. You are either against him in disobedience or with him in obedience. We have to pick a side. And remember, picking a side is not simply agreeing that he's a great teacher or acknowledging that his wisdom is without equal. No. To take his side is to do what he says. What all Christians have in common is not our nationality, not our our culture, not our hobbies, our, our age, our job, our socioeconomic status. No, what we have in common is that we all have God as Father through Jesus Christ and we all do his will. We see as Jesus is teaching here, his family comes to him. There are a number of clues throughout the gospels that at this point his his family and especially his brothers are not his disciples. John 7 5 says it explicitly. It says, not even his brothers believed in him. So as his family calls on him, he turns it into a teaching moment. Who is truly his family? Not those who are related to him by blood. It is those who are related to him by spiritual adoption. Indicated by their family trait. Doing the will of their father in heaven. You notice here that Jesus teaches the priority of spiritual family even over biological family. Now, of course, the priority of spiritual family does not mean the neglect of the biological, not at all. But but brothers and sisters, I call you that intentionally, family, brothers and sisters, what might it look for you to treat your siblings in Christ, with this kind of priority? What ways can you treat fellow members here like family? Not just acquaintances, not even good friends, very good friends, but, but family. You might notice here that Jesus calls no one father, because we all have one father in heaven. And Jesus is the one who reveals that father in heaven. So, Jesus is calling us to obey Him, the revealer of the Father, and obey Him. It's as He said at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. He goes on to say, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Hear and do. Just like the fruit trees we considered last week. It's not that we obey Jesus in order to be adopted. No. No. Our new tree shows up in our fruit. Our adoption shows up in the family trait. In our obedience. How do we know who's in the family? Well, they have the family trait. They obey the Father. They do the will of the Father. Church, when Jesus calls you to do the Father's will... He is calling you to do something that you by yourselves cannot do with the heart you were born with. If we have the power to obey, it's because we have been made obedient from the heart by His grace. He has equipped us with everything good that we may do His will. It's time to remember, brothers and sisters, that that in Adam we are all born with a nature in rebellion against God, refusing to to do his will. We are all born spiritually dead. And even though we all deserve eternal death, Jesus willingly died a rebel's death on a cross that we can instead receive the beloved son's status, holy and blameless before God. And this we can have simply by faith and repentance in response to Jesus' preaching and wisdom. And in Christ. We receive a new nature, like new trees, bearing the fruit of obedience. All who have been born from above will have this family trait. They do the will of the Father who is in heaven. Imperfectly, yes, but but increasingly and in earnest, the preaching and wisdom of Jesus demands that we repent and do his will. Friends, why don't we close with this this morning? This week, make it your aim to pick one member of this church that you don't know too well. Maybe they're new. Maybe they're not like you. Or maybe, frankly, there's something honestly you don't like about them. But Jesus here teaches that you and, and him or her are closer than even blood. Blood. So pick one member of your heavenly family here and do one thing that you would normally reserve for those who are closest to you in your very family. Give them a call to check in. Write them a card. Invite them over for dinner. Maybe deliver them a meal if they're in need. However you decide, show off the family trait together. Do the will of our Father in heaven. All that we need to choose to repent and obey is clear. Jesus' preaching and wisdom make it plain that he is the greater prophet and king to whom all obedience belongs. The choice is clear, brothers and sisters, so make the choice every day to repent and obey the one who is greater than all. Let's pray. Father, we come to the one who is greater than all, greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, greater than anyone this world can offer, Jesus Christ, the great prophet and king. Lord, we praise you for revealing him to us in his preaching and wisdom that he is sent from you. Lord, that he is no mere teacher, he is no no mere wise man, but he is God incarnate. Father, we pray that we would have eyes to see and hearts to believe and to believe Belief that is matched by the true fruit of belief, obedience. Lord, that we would show off that we are the family of God in our obedience to the will of our common Father in heaven. Or do this grace in us by your power for the glory of Jesus, we pray. Amen.